Hi, welcome to Bush History. I'm David Bush. You're listening to my seventh podcast review on American history. It'll cover the years 1929 to 1945. This podcast, as well as the rest of them, were first shown on YouTube and are still available on YouTube as full-length videos. You can also find additional information on my website, www.bushhistory.net. That's B-U-S-C-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y.net. I hope you find this useful. In 1929, we find ourselves in the Great Depression. The stock market crashes. The stock market crashes because people have been borrowing money to buy stocks, called margin buying. They borrow money from the banks and they only put up 10% of their own money. 90% is bank money, it's, which means it's borrowed money. It belongs to the rest of the depositors who have money in the bank. So basically what's happening is stocks are being purchased using other people's money. Also what's occurring during the 1920s, you have a lack of regulations. So nobody's watching the business and no one's watching the banks. The farmers are suffering partly due to prohibition. The, uh, you know, the crops that they grew, the, the grains and the, the wheat products that they grew were used to make alcohol, which certainly isn't happening in great quantity during the Great Depression. Things are pretty bad during the 1920s. Things are pretty bad. So, stock market crashes, and basically, paper money that was never there, it only showed up on balance sheets, no one ever saw the greenbacks for this, now disappeared as the value of stocks declined. Margin calls occurred, which simply meant that stockbrokers asked people who bought the stock on margin to start paying. They didn't have the money. Money was depleted from bank accounts to try to cover margin calls. And we have this huge deflation, which is a lack of money in circulation, which is what the Great Depression is all about. A huge deflation and unemployment. After trying to deal with this for three years, Herbert Hoover is completely ineffective. He has his Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which basically is going to give money and loans and tax breaks to businesses if they will turn around and hire. But the businesses don't necessarily do that. This is called trickle-down economics. You start with the job providers and you give them breaks hoping they will hire people. It wasn't happening. In 1933, Franklin Roosevelt becomes president. He wins the election in 1932 by a landslide. becomes president in 1933 promising the people a new deal. Well, what does a new deal mean? It means jobs, it means government intervention in the economy, it means foreclosures will stop, it means all kinds of things. Basically it has three R's, relief, recovery, and reform. We're going to relieve the suffering of the people. The Federal Emergency Relief Act does that. It, he has Harry Hopkins go around and actually hand out money around the United States and the big cities to try to put money back into circulation. He also closes the bank with the Emergency Bank Act and the banks are then examined. And over the span of the next couple of weeks, the banks are re-examined and the banks that are healthy, meaning they have money on account in reserves to pay their depositors, will reopen. The banks that do not have enough money will be consolidated and eventually liquidated and closed. It, you know, it's not great if you had money in the closed banks, but it stops the bleeding for the banks that are solvent. We're going to get NIRA, the National Industrial Recovery Act, which is a huge program where uh, a lot of jobs are going to be created in this program and minimum wage will be set and workplace regulations will be set and the government is basically going to become highly socialized. The Civilian Conservation Corps, the Tennessee Valley Authority, these are work jobs. The whole idea is to put people back to work and the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, the AAA, is going to oversee farm production and try to prop up farm prices. It's going to be very controversial because farm products are actually going to be destroyed by the millions of tons to try to bring farm prices up. Anyway, that all happens in the first hundred days of the
the Roosevelt presidency. Very effective, and to this day, presidents are gauged against Roosevelt's 100 days. In 1935, Roosevelt's still very busy when he gets Social Security, and Social Security is part of the reform set of the relief, recovery, and reform. Let's make sure that as we go forward, senior citizens and people who are disabled will have money to live off of and they won't be beggars in the streets. We're also going to get the National Labor Relations Act, called, so-called the Wagner Act. The Wagner Act is going to allow people to unionize and there's a lot of workplace reforms that occur, uh, sometimes called the Magna Carta of Labor. Proof that Mother Nature has a sense of humor, the dust bowl is. Those poor farmers who were so negatively affected by prohibition and by lack of consumption after World War I, now we're going to have a, uh, a drought that goes on for the better part of six years. And they're going to end up leaving their land and heading out west. Uh, John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath does a good job showing what the Dust Bowl actually does. Going into 1937, well, Roosevelt is, is uh, he's stinging because some of his New Deal programs have been declared unconstitutional. Naira has been declared unconstitutional as a huge overreach by the federal government dealing with intrastate commerce. And the Agricultural Adjustment Act has been declared unconstitutional because of the idea of directly taxing canners and um, processors to support the farmers. So those are both declared unconstitutional. And Roosevelt says, well, enough of this. And he wants to pack the courts, which simply means he wants to take judges who are over 70 years old and give them a helping hand. And he wants to nominate new judges. Well, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But it's, it's nevertheless, there's an outrage in the United States. Roosevelt is trying to look like a dictator. Well, speaking of dictators, while that's happening, in 1937, the Japanese are going to invade Manchuria in China, and they're going to show their imperialist aims at this time in Asia. Not that they haven't been doing this for a while, but that's a big event along the road to World War II. Moving along, the Depression is still occurring, the Dust Bowl is still occurring. In 1939, Germany invades Poland and World War II begins. Well, what does this have to do with the United States in 1939? Well, 1939 has quite a lot to do with, war, with the United States because it's going to help get us out of the, of the Depression as the United States economy gears up to support the Allies as they're defending themselves against the Nazis. There's big debate over what actually ends the Depression. Is it all of Roosevelt's uh, socialist make-work jobs and government intervention or is it World War II? Well, it really doesn't matter, because what is a world war? A world war, war? a world war is huge, massive government spending. It's huge government hiring, as we're hiring people into the military. Our factories are going full bore. It's uh, full employment, because as the soldiers go away to fight the war, you're going to have women and minorities taking their jobs. So really what it comes down to is, a war is a huge government work project. So it doesn't matter what ends the depression. Either way, it's huge government intervention in the economy. So as we go into 1940, World War II is underway in Europe, we're going to get the first peacetime draft. So that's going to take a lot of people off the unemployment rolls. And we're also going to get the idea that the factories are producing to help support the Allies. That's going to be called the arsenal for democracy. That's what Roosevelt calls us. He says, we are the arsenal for democracy. Well, moving into 1941, he announces that the Allies in Europe, they really don't have enough money 
to pay direct cash as what had been part of a cash and carry program for supplies to fight off the Nazis. And he introduced the Lend-Lease program, which basically means they're going to pay when the war is over for any supplies that they get from us during, uh, during World War II. In the summer of 1941, there's going to be a secret meeting between Churchill and FDR. It's going to be called the Atlantic Charter. It's the Atlantic Conference that leads to the Atlantic Charter. And the Atlantic Charter, basically, they make the plans for the end of the war. So the whole idea that Roosevelt is keeping us out of war is a bit of a fallacy because he's planning the end of the war in the summer of 1941 before we're even into, in the war. And if you took a look at 1940, we also have a draft going on. If we're not pre preparing to go into the war, why are we having this draft? Well, they also plan a world peacekeeping organization at the Atlantic Charter called the United Nations. So we're planning the end of the war. We're planning United Nations. We're planning on a Europe first campaign in the war, and that's all occurring in the summer before Pearl Harbor. And of course, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live, live in infamy, is when the Japanese are going to attack Pearl Harbor. There's a tremendous debate about that attack on Pearl Harbor. Some people believe that Roosevelt let it happen, that he ordered the fleet to stay at Pearl Harbor, that we would show the flag to the Japanese and that would intimidate them, or they would attack the fleet, thereby drawing us into World War II, because we could say the Japanese attacked us. There's never been enough evidence to really prove it, but there's certainly enough evidence to have the discussion. I think the idea that Roosevelt actually would have let us be attacked at Pearl Harbor is kind of ludicrous, but nevertheless, we do get involved in World War II because of the attack on Pearl Harbor. So with the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor, there has to be a reaction at home here. And the reaction at home is as big a deal as you might expect. The you know men all over the United States are signing up to join the military. Uh, there's a reaction, there's a fear, there's a racism going on, and one of the first things that occurs is Franklin Roosevelt issues Executive Order 9066, which is the internment of Japanese Americans. And it's Japanese in coastal areas. It, strangely enough, doesn't affect Hawaii, which is where all of this began, but it's basically the west coast of the United States. And Japanese will be taken out of their homes, they will put in these internment camps. It's important not to call them concentration camps. This is a horrible thing. There's no doubt about it. It's a complete loss of civil liberties, but they're not concentration camps. They'll be kept there for the duration of the war, and sometimes people confuse the two. Now, what's also going on is we need a reaction. We need a quick reaction to this. And Roosevelt wants to show the Japanese that they are not omnipotent, that they can turn around and they can be attacked. If they can attack us, we can attack them. And on April 18, 1942, we launched what's called the Doolittle Raid. The Doolittle Raid is a bombing of Tokyo from aircraft carriers out in the Pacific, just to show the Japanese that we can. It doesn't have a huge military significance, but it has a morale significance, meaning it really does a great job on American morale to show that we can attack the Japanese on their, you know, on their mainland, and by the same token, it it's a blow to the Japanese morale who think that, well, they're not, they can't be touched because they're so far away. So it's significant in that respect. Moving forward, um, the decision had been made previously at the Atlantic Conference to concentrate on Europe, and concentrate on Europe we do. In the Pacific, it's more of a waiting game. We're going to wait till we're done in Europe and kind of hold our own in the Pacific. Well, in 1943, the invasion of Italy occurs, and this is a big move. This is a big move because Stalin has been yelling and screaming that he wants a second front in Europe. And uh, Winston Churchill really didn't want to give Stalin a second front because the whole Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact 
that pact allowed the, uh, the Nazis to launch a full-scale attack on Britain without worrying about what's happening to their east on the eastern front, so to speak. And that was, you know, eventually that turned around when uh, the Germans attack the Soviet Union and Stalin can't believe that his friend Adolf Hitler would do that to him. Well, when your friend is Adolf Hitler, you've got to think twice about trusting that person, for sure. So in any case, so 1943, we launched the invasion of Italy. And this is a tough, tough invasion. And the funny story about that is we got help from the Mafia. We got help from the Mafia, specifically Lucky Luciano, who had been deported. We got help from the Mafia in communicating with people in Italy to defend against the Nazis and actually help during the invasion of Italy. So kind of a strange little fun fact there. Nevertheless, so now we've invaded Italy in 1943, and in 1944, we're going to get the beginning of the end for the Nazis with D-Day, the largest amphibious assault in world history. Everything we've got goes at the German coastline. goes at the French coastline, I'm sorry. Everything we've got goes at the French coastline, and um, the Nazi high command didn't think that the, uh, that the invasion was going to occur when and where. It did occur. We had the famous rubber army in England, which were decoy tanks and decoy planes and decoy trucks, and we had Patton in England as well. And these, all of these things served to uh, throw the Nazis off the path. Plus, um, a lot of the Nazis had been given leave at the time, so Nazi commanders had begun to leave at the time, and they weren't even there at the beginning of the invasion. So D-Day was a huge, huge um, success in terms of catching the Germans by surprise. The overwhelming force we showed was unbelievable. And that's the beginning of the end, because this is June 6, 1944 for D-Day, and by the time we hit May 8, 1945, we have V-E-Day. In between, we have, beginning of 1945, we have Yalta. Yalta is on the Crimean, and it's Churchill, and it's Franklin Roosevelt, and it's Stalin. And they're deciding what's going to happen at the end of the war. And at Yalta, there are a lot of significant decisions. One of them is to divide Germany into occupation zones. One for the French, one for the British, one for the Soviet Union, one for the United States. And then they would also divide Berlin the same way. But that Germany, uh, the Berlin part of Germany, I should say, would belong to the Soviet Union, and Berlin would then be divided into four as well. A very complicated, really unworkable plan, but it was meant to please all sides of uh, the European allies here. So nevertheless, what was also decided there was that the Soviets would remove their troops from the lands they had conquered, and that there'd be free elections in Eastern Europe, most notably Poland, when the war came to an end. And Stalin also said that he would join the war in Asia when the war in Europe was over. So this is a good thing. This is a good thing for the Allies. It's all looking pretty good. But then what happens? The war is proceeding along. We're doing well in Europe. The Soviets are coming from the east. The Americans and French are, and British are coming from the west. And they want to squeeze Hitler, if they can, right in the middle. And that's going to be at Berlin. So we get to the gates of Berlin. We're pretty close. We're pretty close to actually ending the war. And on April 12th, FDR dies. And this is a, a huge blow. Yes, he had been in his fourth term, and yes, he was very old, but the idea that he was going to die at the beginning of his fourth term was uh, pretty far-fetched, for sure. But he did, and Harry Truman, relatively untried, becomes president of the United States. And Harry Truman actually stewards the end of World War II, and is not Franklin Roosevelt. But Harry Truman is not Franklin Roosevelt in a lot of ways, and Stalin feels he can get away with a lot with him. So, in any case, FDR dies shortly thereafter, while uh, 
the Russians are on the outskirts of Berlin and coming into the city. Hitler is going to commit suicide, the famous bunker story. It's a global studies thing. We're not going to go into this. And on VE Day, on April, uh, May 8, 1945, the, what's left of the German high command actually surrenders, and that is the end of the war in Europe and the beginning of a lot of problems between the Soviet Union and the United States. So now we move forward. And in July of... 1945, we go to the Potsdam Conference. Now, the Potsdam Conference is, it's interesting, it's in Potsdam, Germany, it's in Concord, Germany, and FDR is gone. Churchill is out of power. Clement Attlee is actually in power now. Churchill's out of power because he's a wartime prime minister and the war in Europe was over. So Clement Attlee is now in charge, and there's Stalin. And at the Potsdam Conference, a couple of interesting, quirky things happen. First of all, Harry Truman finds out that the atomic bomb works. It's been tested. He gets a, a message that basically says the baby has been delivered. And he's saying, oh, how am I going to use this thing? He also finds out from Stalin that the Japanese are trying to surrender. And they're trying to surrender to the Soviets because the Soviets are the only one of the major powers that are not technically at war with the Japanese yet. So Stalin knows the Japanese are trying to surrender. He tells Truman. Truman says, don't say anything. The thing, funny thing about this is Stalin and Truman are actually plotting against each other. Stalin wants to enter the war so he can take the war in Asia, so he can take China and possibly parts of Japan and certainly Korea. And by the same token, Harry Truman would really like to drop the atomic bomb so he can show the Russians what he has. So they're plotting against each other. And Stalin also announces that he's not going to withdraw his troops from Eastern Europe and he's not going to allow free elections in Poland. So he's going back on what happened at the Alta Conference. Certainly, Truman feels betrayed, but Stalin feels like he can run the table because he's the only guy left who was part of the initial, you know, the initial agreement here for what was going to happen at the end of World War II. So then, they leave. They they leave Potsdam. They leave Potsdam, and what's going to happen next is on August 6, 1945, the atomic bomb is going to be dropped on Hiroshima. Harry Truman ignores the idea that the Japanese are trying to surrender, he drops the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. Why does he do this? History is tough on this one. You can talk to a lot of people and hear a lot of different stories. Personally, I believe he wants to show the Soviet Union, look what we have, because he ignored the Japanese attempt to surrender. So what happens next is Stalin launches a full-scale invasion of northern China on his way towards Japan because he wants to be in on the kill in Japan. So what happens is, uh, Truman turns around on August 9th, orders a second dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan, on Nagasaki this time. And he's trying to get Japan to surrender quickly. He's shown the world we have the atomic bomb. Now he wants Japan to surrender quickly before the Soviets can gain a lot of ground. And Stalin is moving as quickly as he can to get as much land as he can. So what do we have here? It's August 15th, 1945, and that is VJ Day. Victory over Japan. August 14, 1945, and we have VE Day as May 8, 1945. So that concludes World War II, and actually a lot of people look at it as the formal beginning of the Cold War.